0: we 're going to find ourselves in First Peter chapter one verses three through nine so if you would open your Bibles, go ahead and go there with me um, i 'm going to ramble a little bit before we jump into uh, our time and uh, uh, if, if you're new, again, we'd love to hang out with you. man. Uh, fill out one of those Connect cards that's on the on the chairs. Drop them in the, the offering basket or drop them off at the Connect Center, which is in the back. Uh, again, we'd love to hang out with you. We'd love to follow up with you. But in addition to that, uh, I think it's in a couple of weeks, two weeks maybe. It's February 1st. It's the art walk that happens here at the incubator. It's the first Friday of every month. And so we serve uh, hospitality here, wine and cheese, and hang out with a lot of uh, the artists and musicians and and, uh, uh, people who participate in the Art Walk. Uh, We'd love to hang out with you then. If if you're kind of uh, scheduling a ton of things uh, during your week and you're not really sure when you can hang out, We'd love to hang out with you during the Art Walk. That's in a couple of weeks on February 1st. In addition to that, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in those rows. That is our gift to you, so please take one with you. Um, and, uh, and if you already have one, take one anyway. I'm sure, I'm sure someone would appreciate that gift. So last week, we started uh, a new sermon series. Um, we started a new sermon series in 1 uh, uh, Peter 1st. Entitled "Exiles," and uh, and so I want to ramble a little bit about that, kind of bring us into this review on where we were last. Week before I dive into our time, uh, so last week we looked at we looked at uh, the Apostle Peter. He's writing to these Christians who are on the verge of, of persecution, who are on the verge or in the midst of persecution, really uh, uh, of some pretty grievous things, and uh, he's he's writing to them uh, in order to encourage them. And so he uses intentional language that is actually not meant, and that might just be our sensitivity that it's actually not meant to ruffle feathers. It's actually to encourage them in light of what is going on and what is happening in their context. And so he uses this language of elect exiles and and what he is telling them in order to encourage them. He's saying, man, as God's chosen people— you are exiled. And, and, and as a result of that, I want your mind set on heavenly things. I want your mind set on who you are in Christ. Eventually, Peter is going to become very practical, uh, and in the course of the next couple of sections, he is going to challenge his readers. He's going to challenge us to pursue holiness. And he's going to challenge us to pursue, or better yet, not just challenge us, but he's going to exhort us to pursue holiness in a number of ways. He's going to encourage us to pursue holiness, uh, what it looks like personally for us as individuals. He's going to talk to us about holiness uh, in a social setting. What does it mean to pursue holiness in light of What does it mean to pursue holiness in light of being in a culture that maybe isn't very Christian? Uh, on, On top of that, he's going to encourage us to pursue holiness communally. What does it look like to pursue holiness with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? But before Peter gets there, before Peter pushes us and leads us into holiness, what he's doing in these first couple of sections is encouraging us, encouraging his readers to stand firm on the foundation of God's work in them. And so here's kind of the underlining theme for this this section, that before God tells you what to do, he begins by telling you who you are. And that's really Peter's entire argument, or his entire, I should say it this way, his entire encouragement to these Christians before God tells you what to do. In other words, before I begin to talk to you about pursuing holiness, we actually need to do business with who you are in light of the finished work of Jesus. And so that's where Peter, Peter is at with these with these Christians. And so he begins by essentially not only referring to them as elect exiles, but he transitioned so that they would best understand this reality in the context of regeneration. And so that's where we're headed. So here's what I'll do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this entire section. It's six verses, um, and uh, it's, it's short when you talk about it. Like, we're only going through six verses, but then when you read it, it's kind of dense. And so we'll break it up as best as possible. Here we go. This is beginning in verse 3. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray, uh, and then we'll, we'll dive into our time. God, we begin uh, this time by <clears throat> man, by thanking you for man, just a wonderful day with beautiful weather. God, I pray that this weather would be a reminder uh, or just a, a, a gift, an evidence of your grace to us. God, I pray that as we begin to walk through 1 Peter, not just this section, but this book, that those who don't know you would come to know you, and those who already know you would come to know you better. God, I pray that you would be glorified in our time together I prayed that I would be set aside and that it would be your Holy Spirit working through me and that it would be you, Holy Spirit, working in the hearts and minds and lives of those who are here, brothers, sisters, and friends alike. And so, God, we thank you once again for this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. You guys ready? All right. I'm not because I don't like this stand. I'm getting OCD. I'm sorry. I'm just being honest with y'all. I'm just getting OCD. I'm assuming this one's better. All right, so uh, we're in 1 Peter 3 9. Peter opens up by saying, Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, according to his great mercy. Peter is going to talk to us about, briefly, he's going to talk to us about the mercy of God and the new birth, being born again. The theological word for being born again is called regeneration, and so we're going to talk about regeneration in just a minute. We're even going to look at a lot of scripture. Last week, it was kind of like Bible trivia, where you had to flip through your pages of your Bible. Some of you knew, oh my gosh, I actually don't know these books. I would challenge you to memorize them. It's only 66. Nevertheless, with that being said, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture as we, as we walk through this section. And so uh, what Peter is going to talk to us about, once again, he's going to talk to us about God's mercy, and we need to talk a little bit about that, and we're going to talk about Regeneration. See, oftentimes when we look at God's mercy, it's often coupled with God's grace, and that is very true. We looked at grace last week, and uh, if you weren't here, grace is defined as God's undeserving favor toward sinners in spite of what they're doing, in spite of their sin, right? It's his undeserving favor toward sinners. Now, with that being said, what that means then is that God's grace is receiving. It's a gift that we do not deserve. It's a gift that we do not deserve. Now, you couple that with mercy. We need to talk about mercy. Mercy in its simplest form is not getting what we deserve. Grace is receiving something we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. See, last week, even though we talked about elect exiles or even the doctrine of election, here's one of the things and where we landed on concerning this doctrine, or just concerning who we are. That apart from Christ, We are all sinners. And as sinners, we are running away from God. We don't look to please God. We don't look for God. We don't look to satisfy his will. That we are running. We are, in other words, exercising our free will away, emancipating ourselves from God. As a result, we all deserve condemnation And hell. That's pretty cut and dry. However, God, in His mercy, pursues His children and gives them not only grace, but mercy. If we deserve condemnation in hell, that means that we deserve death as a result of our sin. But God, through Christ, goes to the cross, not only dies for our sin, but satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf. In other words, Christ lives in our shoes, dies the death that you and I deserve, and then gives us the mercy that not only we can't earn, but that we don't deserve. And all of that is according to the purpose of His mercy. All of that is according to the purpose of his grace. Not our status, not how awesome you think you are, but by how good, gracious, and merciful God is. And so we need to establish that. We need to establish what mercy is, because that's what Peter opens up with. And blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. As I mentioned, the theological term for that is called regeneration. And so we need to talk about what regeneration is. So the Bible teaches that, as I mentioned earlier, that we are born into sin. And as a result, we are physically alive, but spiritually dead. Yes, that is possible, to be physically alive, yet spiritually dead. In other words, that apart from Christ, we are dead in our sin. We are shackled, we are enslaved, we are imprisoned to our sin. And it is only according to his mercy that he gives us the grace or he gives us the gift of regeneration. In other words, he makes our heart spiritually alive. When we break down the word regeneration, there is one agent at work. It is God. It is God who makes us go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. It is God who grants us the gift of belief in repentance by first making us, making our hearts regenerated. Let's look at some verses as we look towards regeneration. This is Jesus in John chapter three, verses three through seven. Jesus is talking to this one Pharisee, his name is Nicodemus, <clears throat> and, uh, and he's talking to him and he, he's essentially he's asking Jesus, well, how is one born again? And we, if we substitute that word, how is one regenerated? And so Jesus answers him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. See, to Jesus, he's speaking simply, or he's speaking very practically to this dude. What he's essentially telling him is, man, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you need a new heart. Because we are dead in our sin, because we are physically alive, but spiritually dead, you need a new heart. And until you get that, you won't inherit the kingdom. You won't inherit the kingdom. And so the idea is like, well, then how do we we get a new heart? How do we get a new heart? Man, Jesus regenerates all those who turn to him in repentance. And, And when we're looking at John 3, Jesus is actually looking back at Ezekiel 36. Here we go. This is verses 25 to 27. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. It is God who takes our dead heart and makes us alive with the new one. So, You frame that in what Peter is saying, according to God's mercy, that we did not receive what we deserve. According to his mercy, we have been born again, that he is giving you a new heart, that he is giving you a regenerated heart, one that actually sees the kingdom, one that actually has its eyes fixed on the glory of God. That's where he's starting. He says, according to his great mercy, you have been born again. To a living hope. Here's, here's what I want you to know for the if you're a Christian. The fruit of God's mercy in the life of the believer is regeneration. The fruit of God's mercy in your life is regeneration. Regeneration, a new heart, the new birth, changes everything. Everything changes. And we're going to look at how that applies in just a minute. So Peter writes that you've been born uh, again to a living hope. That means upon God regenerating our heart, we are given full assurance, not wishful thinking or uncertainty, but unshakable confidence in what god has said he will do that is fulfilling his promises that he is making all things new that he never forsakes us and the metric how we measure that how we know that is true is because the holy spirit dwells in the believer that's our proof that's our proof of full assurance that when our hearts are made new, He puts not only a new heart in us, but His Spirit within us. That is our proof of full assurance. That is our proof that we don't have to be uncertain or wishfully think about what may or may not happen, but that we have security and certainty in the promises of God. The Holy Spirit is that metric. And this is what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. This is John fourteen, fifteen to sixteen. He writes, or he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. He's referring to the Holy Spirit to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him or knows Him, you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, that the role of the Holy Spirit isn't just to dwell, uh, and He's not just docile in the life of the believer, but the Holy Spirit is a helper, the Holy Spirit comforts, the Holy Spirit guides, the Holy Spirit convicts, the Holy Spirit transforms, He is doing a ton of work in us. And as a result, the believer is then transformed. Listen to Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As a result of having the Holy Spirit in you, you can now discern what is good and pleasing to God. Previous to that, you were running from God. Now your desire is to actually discern what is pleasing to God, that you're discerning what his will is, not yours. The Baptist preacher uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon said, if you want to know what your will is, seek the Father's will, and then you will have your will. I think he summarizes that really well. So Peter says, according to his great mercy, you have been born again to a living hope, and he's not done to an inheritance. To an inheritance. What's the inheritance? The inheritance is sonship. Eternal sonship in the presence of God. Eternal sonship in the presence of God. Peter writes that this inheritance is imperishable, That means that it cannot be destroyed by time. That it does not fade away. Peter writes that it is undefiled. That is, that this gift, this inheritance is incorruptible. That it remains pure now and always. Peter says that this inheritance is unfading. This is a promise that lasts forever And check it. I love this. And he says that this gift is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith. This inheritance is guarded by God in heaven through faith. Check it. It is guarded by God in the present tense. He is not saying it's maybe you'll get it. He's not saying this is somewhere in your future. Peter is saying, this is being guarded by God right now in heaven for you. It's similar to when, as we walked through Philippians a couple of months ago, when Paul talks about his heavenly or our heavenly citizenship, which is essentially what Peter is talking about when he refers to to us as elect exiles. A heavenly citizenship isn't something that is going to come later. It is present tense. It's present tense. That as elect exiles, not only are we chosen by God, but that this life and our time here is temporary. Because this isn't home. This isn't home. And so when he says, man, there's a gift for you that's being guarded by God, he's not talking about something that's going to happen later on. He's talking about it's being guarded for you by God right now. That you belong to him right now. That you have heavenly citizenship right now. That this inheritance that is imperishable, that is unfading, that is undefiled, it is being guarded for you right now. And so he's building us up because he's making a point about our identity He's building us up because he's making a point about our identity. But before we continue, listen to Galatians 4. I love this. This is what Paul writes in Galatians 4. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's present tense, y'all. And so Peter in a moment, the next couple of verses is going to begin talking about trial. Now, what I want you to know about trial or sufferings or hardship is that at the very least in this section, Peter is going to be very brief about it. Because remember, he's building us up. He's building us up so that we would stand firm in who we are in Christ. He's going to give a snippet of, uh, of sufferings and trial as a reality check. And then he's going to talk to us about holiness in the next couple of chapters. And then he's going to build up to suffering. But when he builds up to suffering later on in this letter, we should have a good foundation of who we are in Christ from the beginning. So here's what I want you to know. If you go back up to to this section, he writes, Undefiled, unfading, kept in him for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, In this... If you got a pen, if you got a pencil, underline that. He says, In this you rejoice. In this is referring to what he just talked about God's great mercy, regenerated hearts, the living hope that you now have, and the inheritance that is currently being guarded for you. He's saying, In this you rejoice. Now, the reason that's so important is because there is a reality of rejoicing in what God has done, is doing, and is guarding for you as you walk through trials. I'll say that one more time, okay? Because when we start talking about trials, we're going to have to be very real. When he, when he writes, in this we rejoice, there's, there's a reality that you need to have, there's a reality that you need to have concerning rejoicing in what God has done and what God is doing and what God is guarding as we walk through trial. So let's talk about trials. Let's go to those verses. It's verses six through seven. I don't have them numbered in my notes, but I want to reread these. Right? Verse six and seven. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Check it. When we talk about trial, we need to be real. That's what we're going to do right now when we talk about trial and suffering and hardship, we need to be real. We also need to be practical. Peter is going to be very practical in just a moment, right? I'm not going to be corny and say we need to be really practical, even though it's kind of true, right? But nevertheless, we need to be real and we need to be practical. Because oftentimes in seasons of suffering and trial, we are either one or the other or completely ignore both. We completely ignore both. So we're going to look at two things in light of verses 7 and 9. We're going to look at the reality of trials, and then we're going to look at the practicality of trials. And so when we're looking at the, the reality of trials, here's what I love in, in verse 6. I'm going to reread this one section. So he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. Underlying this, you have been Grieved you have been grieved. Here's why I like it. Eh, Here's why I like it. I like it because Peter is addressing how they feel. That's really important. That's really important because many of us can be robots. Many of us can be robots and maybe you have the solution to everything. Just read a psalm. Just go do this. Just pray more. You should really do something about that. Here, he's addressing how they feel, that they are grieved, man, that they are lamenting, that they are mourning, that they are, they are heavily burdened by what's going on. And so here's a question that I want you to walk through in CG this week. When in trial, when in seasons of suffering, how do you feel? How do you feel? It's a pretty simple question. How do you feel? See, everyone, everyone's in a trial. Everyone goes through seasons of suffering. Maybe seasons of suffering may include marital tension, hardship. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's just relationships. Maybe you're battling sin and you're just losing often. Everybody's in a season. You're incredibly anxious, you're super stressed. Maybe you're in that right now. Maybe you see it on the horizon. Maybe you just got done with it. Regardless, everyone's in a trial. So we're going to talk about feelings, what everybody loves to talk about. How do you feel? How do you feel? Don't be a robot. See, even though emotions may come secondary to the truth, that doesn't make them unimportant. That doesn't make them unimportant. And some of you love being robots. Just go do this. Go read a Psalm. And some of us will even be like, okay, yes, I totally need to go read a Psalm. And then you read the Psalms and you hear David cry out, where are you, Lord? And you're like, this is just reminding me of what I'm going through. Thanks for telling me to go read the Psalms. I hate you, right? Like these are all the things that tend to happen in seasons of suffering. So emotions are important. So here's what I want you to know about emotions. It's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. It's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. And this is where many of you park. Many of you park in the, man, it's okay not to be okay, so I'm just not going to be okay. And what often happens is that you become self-absorbed and narcissistic in your season of suffering, and it goes to waste. It goes to waste. Because now it's all about you. Everybody needs to change everything because it's all about you. You don't get what I'm going through. Look at me. Look at how hard this is. Have you seen how much weight I've lost? Do you see how stressed out I am? Do you know what to do? No, then you should find out what to do. You're making it about yourself. You become self-absorbed. You become narcissistic. You disregard people's feelings. You become entitled because you want to, and that's the key, you want to stay there. It's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. It's not okay to stay there. And so, as a result, you lose sight of the truth about God. You lose sight about the truth about God. And so, when it comes to trials, we're still in the, the reality portion of it. I want to talk about two things regarding trial. The first one is that trials are a result of a fallen world. Now we need to talk about this a little bit. In the sense that trial weren't, trials were not a part of God's original design or creation, and then sin and corruption entered into creation. And so now we have trials and suffering and hardship and all a bunch of things Now. That is a reality. Some of you will take that and say, well, I'm in a season of suffering because of other people's sin. You just jacked it, right? The reason I'm in this position is because had that person not done X, Y, and Z, I wouldn't have been here because you're so holy, right? So number one, but that's still a reality. That doesn't mean we neglect it, but that's still a reality. It just needs to be a heart check, right? Right? uh, Seasons of suffering or hardship or trial are a result of a fallen world. That's a reality. Don't abuse it. It's just a reality. The second thing is, this is where we're going to land on, is that trials are used by God to refine our faith. Trials are used by God to refine our faith. Here's what I want you to know. That trials and suffering are under the sovereignty of God. They are under his authority. They are under his care. They are under his uh, leadership. They are under his control. They are not outside of him. But he allows them, which means they are not meaningless or pointless, They are not meaningless or pointless. Trials are meant, listen here, trials are meant to make you holy. They're meant to make you holy. Listen to James chapter one. Do I have it on here? I don't have it on here. All right, let's race. James chapter one. We're going to go to verses uh, three through five. Phones don't count. Here we go. James writes, actually beginning in verse 2, James writes... Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Before I continue, we're actually going to go beyond verse 5. Before I continue, the idea of trial is that you are becoming more and more like Jesus, That you are growing in your godliness. That you actually grow in holiness. Because elsewhere in Peter, he quotes God saying, Be holy, for I am holy. You grow in uh, holiness. You grow in godliness. That's the point of a trial. James continues, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Man, they're just going left and right, left and right, can't land somewhere. And he says, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, or excuse me, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. He is saying, if you're not asking in faith, right? That doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard. That doesn't mean that you need to work through things. But he's saying if you're not asking in faith and you're constantly being swung to and fro because of your emotions or because you're too focused on yourself, you're actually unstable. You're, you're, you're divided. You have one foot inside of the Word of God and one foot inside of the world. And what you want to try and do is try to see how these two can work so you could ultimately get what you want. And that's not how it works. It's not how it works. And so Peter goes into this analogy using gold. He says that your faith is going to be tested for its genuineness, like gold is tested by fire. Now there are two things that happen when gold is tested in fire. When you have this, I guess this lump of gold, I've never held gold, but I've seen it on the Discovery Channel. So uh, when you have this lump of gold, right, they test it by fire for a couple of reasons. Number one, to test it to actually see if it's gold right? To test its purity. That's number one. Number two, if it is gold, oftentimes it has mineral deposits and other impurities. By testing it in the fire, the fire burns off all of those mineral deposits and burns off all of those impurities so that when they take it out of the fire, you have pure gold, right? Here's the moral or here's what Peter is ultimately saying. Trials either refine your faith or expose it. Trials either refine your faith or expose it. If the goal is to be godly, holy, more like Jesus, we'll see. We'll see. It's kind of it. Trials either refine your faith or they expose it. And so that's the reality of trials. Trials. Let's look to the practicality of trials after a coffee break. When it comes to the practicality of trials, so, so we hear about the reality, like, okay, I get it. Being refined, gotta do stuff. I'm still feeling really discouraged. Peter, a disciple of Christ, an apostle of the first church, St. Peter gives us this one piece of godly advice. He says, Rejoice. He says, Rejoice. That is his practical godly wisdom for you. He says, To rejoice. Hearing about rejoicing. Brings promises, brings promises to know, or maybe it's just difficult to hear. On one end, maybe, maybe hearing about rejoicing sounds promising because the Bible commands us to rejoice, especially in difficulty, or in difficulty and in hard seasons, and hard seasons ought to draw us closer to God. And so because I hear that, that just might mean for me that rejoicing, that joy is actually possible. That joy is possible, and and so I have hope that I can get that, that I want joy. It might be difficult, because it just sounds condemning. Rejoice. Have joy. Be joyful. And it may just sound condemning, because simply, you're not joyful. You feel dry. Maybe you're like David in Psalm 51. Restore me to the joy of my salvation. I'm just dry. Here would be my encouragement. The truth is, God is committed to your joy. God is committed to your joy because joy is directly linked to his glory. Say that again. God is committed to your joy because joy is directly linked to his glory. Just because God is righteous and holy doesn't make him indifferent. It is the promises of God through Christ that lead us to joy. They're not joy isn't found in external circumstances. Joy in and of itself is not an emotion. It is a lifestyle, a lifestyle that is rooted in regeneration. And as a result, we can have a life for God's glory. Now, with that being said, that sounds very Christianese, right? Because the truth is, even walking through that, that still doesn't mean that trial is going to be easier but at the very least, you know it's not pointless. At the very least, you know it's not meaningless. And at the very least, it reminds you to fix your eyes on Christ because of the work of Christ in you. In addition to that, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, says that we have a high priest, his name is Jesus, who can sympathize with us. That you can bring this and be brutally honest before him. So there is some practical, there's, there's a practical reality when it comes to suffering. Rejoice. That doesn't mean you ignore the season. And you're just like, this is great. I love affliction, right? Like that's not, that's not what it means, right? So it, it stinks. It's hard. It, there's things that you don't want to be a part of and you don't want certain things to be a part of your life, but it's not meaningless and it's not pointless and God hasn't forsaken you. In fact, he's drawing you to himself. He's drawing you closer to himself so that you would grow in godliness and holiness and ultimately be conformed to the image of Jesus. It's not meaningless. And so Peter closes with final encouragement. This is verses 8 and 9. I guess I'll read them. Verses 8 and 9, this is what Peter writes. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As a result of affliction, Peter isn't like, he doesn't just say rejoice so that you would be perfect. At the same time, he's not just saying rejoice so that you would ignore your season. He's not saying. Any of those things at all, but he lands on what I pick three last encouragements. I guess you could think of these as practical things, but maybe they're just really good reminders, right? Maybe it's not so much uh, application as it is implication. And so Peter lands on last three things. He says to have a love for Jesus. When he uses the word love, he's talking about unashamed that we don't need to see him to have love for him, but. God reveals himself through his word and the Holy Spirit quickens our hearts for him. Going back to the beginning of the sermon, the message, the Holy Spirit is the metric in the sense of man, how can we rest easy and secure in the promises and in the assurance of God? The Holy Spirit is the answer. He's the answer. He dwells in the believer And so when Peter says, man, though you haven't seen him, but you love him, man, because you know, not only has he revealed himself through his word, but because of the Holy Spirit in you, quickening your heart for him. He says to have belief in Jesus. This is twofold. In other words, it's not simply agreement with a doctrine uh, or a doctrine of beliefs, but it is submission to him. That's the game changer, That's the game changer. Submission is the game changer. There can be plenty of things that you agree with that does not necessarily mean that you are submitted to them. Submission, or better yet saying it this way, belief is actually coming under the authority. Or to submit means to come underneath the authority of that which you believe in. That's what submission is. Many of you try to live the Christian life without Christ, which I guess is just life, right? So uh, you try to live the Christian life without Christ, right? It, it doesn't work. That they, you, you would be correct, technically. That is an unsubmitted life. All right, right? But if you say, man, I believe in God, right? Elsewhere in James, he says, cool, you believe. So do the demons. Great, awesome, Belief includes submission. Well, how do we know that you're submitted? You are growing in godliness, holiness, and becoming more and more like Jesus. That's how we know you're submitted. And then finally, he says, enjoyment of Jesus. In other words, the end product of a faith that has been tested and refined is inexpressible joy. I don't even have like a word to say or or something to say in this sermon when it comes to inexpressible joy, because that's essentially what it is. Maybe you have met Christians who are going through hardship, and they're just like, man, my heart is just filled with joy. This season is really hard. I don't like it. It's been really challenging, but my eyes have been beset before Christ. I've failed. I've repented. You see them like working and walking through it in a way that they should probably be going insane, right? Right? It's inexpressible, and so when you might begin to ask them, or maybe when people have asked you, like, okay, well, help me explain this, like, or help, help, to help me understand what you mean by that. You're like, well, it's okay, so, all right, look, listen, so there's God, right, and uh, he entered into human history as Jesus, and he died for my sin, and he also satisfied the wrath of God, and your friends look at you with puzzled looks, and you say, hold up, hold up. Man, I've repented of my sin, and God has Given me a new heart and his spirit. As a result, he is working in me, man, to to love Jesus even in the midst of this hardship, even in the midst of, of, man, some of the things I might need to own. And they're just like, all right, cool. I'll see you at lunch. Or they might want to know more. And that's your opportunity to, man, tell them about Jesus. Great. The idea here is that the end result of a faith that has or is being tested and is being refined is inexpressible joy and glory. In verse six, Peter said that they are grieved by various trials. That word grieve has weight to it, that they are burdened heavily. It's no mistake that he ends with the word glory because that has weight, but it is not a weight It is not a weight that is removed from God. In fact, it is the glory of God. The mercy of God in regeneration, the new birth, change of heart or new heart, the mercy of God in regeneration changes everything for the believer. It changes everything there is or should be no aspect of your life that the gospel has not affected change in. And so for the believer, if you're a Christian, I've got a couple things for you. Be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged because, man, seasons of suffering and trial and hardship, they're real. And God is not forsaking you. And God is still at work in you. And God is still at work around you. Be encouraged. In addition to that encouragement, man, Hebrews 4 says that we can approach the Father because of the work of the Son to go and find mercy and grace. You can can run to your heavenly Father because the Son has, like, through his work, you have access to him. So be encouraged. That's number one. Number two, be repentant. Don't waste seasons of suffering or trial. What repentance is going to do, it's going to draw you back to the fact that the grace of God is your only hope. Repentance practically means to turn away from your sin and to fix your eyes on Christ. Christ. It also means that you recognize man, that the grace of God is your only hope. So be repentant. In this, in this season, are you thinking, are you thinking about a holiness that reflects God? Or are you simply just thinking about yourself? And if you don't know Jesus, be encouraged because he invites you. He invites you to come to him. He invites you to turn away, or excuse me, to turn to him in repentance so that you would receive mercy. The Gospels are filled with Jesus saying, Come to me, come to me, come to me. He invites you to turn in repentance so that you would receive mercy. And the truth is that you could live a life that has a love for Jesus, belief in Him, enjoyment of Him. You can have that in trial as a result of redemption. Regeneration Church changes everything. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time of, of, of worship where we got to hear the preached word or your word preached. I should say it that way. God, my, my simple prayer uh, is that you, Holy Spirit, would be causing change, conviction in our hearts right now. That, that Peter's uh, encouragement, his admonishment first is for us to be grounded in the finished work of Jesus. And the truth is that when trials come our way, that's the last thing that we ground ourselves in. And so God, would you expose that? Would you reveal that to us? And may we turn away from it in repentance so that as we continue perhaps in our current season of, of suffering or hardship, our, our hearts would be settled on the glory of Jesus, on the finished work of Jesus, God, would we ultimately just become more like Jesus in this season? May we not waste suffering. May we not waste these trials. May we come to you in faith, God. We uh, we also man worship you this morning as we walk into a time of giving. God, I pray that this time would be a demonstration of your work in our lives. This is a tangible demonstration of your work in our life. And so, God, may we give generously, may we give faithfully, and may we give cheerfully. God, so that your church would be equipped, so that your gospel would be expanded or furthered and your kingdom expanded. God, I also pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom so that we would be good stewards with these finances, that they would be used all for the glory of your name and not our own. And so, God, we thank you for this morning and this opportunity to worship you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.